You are listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at www.riversideconnect.org. Thank you so much for your faithfulness in giving. And uh, my name is Bill. If I've not met you yet, like uh, Pastor Dave just said, I will be at the New to Know session afterwards. I'd love to meet you and have a brief conversation with you. And uh, Bob... Bob, God bless you guys as you take off for Nepal today. Praying for you. Hope all goes well and come back safely. So uh, God give, bless you well and use you well. We are talking here about Fully Alive. It's our new theme for this coming year, this, this next annual theme of us. Today we're going deeper in that theme this month. And it comes from the passage that Jesus, in John's gospel, Jesus said that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I've come to give life and life in all of its fullness. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Don't you want a full life? Don't you want life in all of its fullness? How many of you would like a full life, life in all its fullness, the kind of life that Jesus wants to give you? Because that's what he wants to give you. He wants to give you that full life, that abundant life. And we're trying to figure out what does that mean? How do I live that life? Um, so we're, go- we're gonna go deep into that over the next few weeks beginning today. Um, but before we do that, I just want to give you a newsflash. Maybe you heard that this week. Newsflash. Did you know that napping can help you live longer? Did you hear that this week? It was on the news. It's like, oh, wow, that's news. A new study out of, out of, out of uh, Switzerland reports that the occasional nap appears to cut in half people's risks for a heart attack, for strokes, for heart disease, compared to those who never nap. How many nappers do we have in here? So you're going to live a long time. God bless you. Uh, I'm going to live forever. Uh, <laughs> but, but let me just balance that out because there's a different study, lesser known study out of the Vatican that showed, however, that if you nap during a sermon, your chances of being struck by lightning are tripled. So do you believe the Vatican or do you believe Switzerland? I don't know, which is harder to believe. Um, at, at the end of the day, I think uh, there's nothing better than when you can lay your head down on a soft pillow and fall into a restful sleep. Don't you like a good night's sleep? I sure do. Don, Donnie and I, Donnie's preaching up at the mills today. We were talking about this passage today, and Donnie came up with the idea to talk about rest and, and, and pillows, using pillows. He talks about how pillows, pillows are very personal, aren't they? I mean, you go to a nice hotel these days, and now they'll give you all different sizes and, and kinds of pillows, because they know that, that people, how many of you take your own pillow with you when you go on vacation? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's very personal. And um, I mean, some like them firm, some like them, some like them soft, right? Some like foam, others have to have a down feathers. Some like big pillows, others like small pillows, some can do with one, others need two. How many of you need at least two pillows? Yeah, me too, yeah. And so, so it's very you know, personal, unique. Um, but we're talking about rest. I, let me just say that rest really isn't about the pillow because it's about more foundational things. To get a good night's sleep, it is good to have a good pillow. But I think true rest is more important than just the pillow. Jesus said this, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I'm gentle and humble of heart and you will find rest 
for your souls. So we're talking about how being fully alive, you really got to have a a soul that's at rest. That's really the theme of the day. Last week, we introduced this series with the idea that there are three postures. That's why we have the three icons in our graphic for the series. There's the upward posture. We talked about how I'm fully alive whenever I tap into the source of life. There's the sideways posture, which is all about I'm fully alive when I cultivate true relationships. And then there's the outward posture, which is I'm fully alive when I step into my mission. And so today we want to talk about how tapping into the source of life, we're going to start with that first thing, and is the key to really finding rest for your souls. Rest for your souls. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're going to go, we're going to stick in that over the next several weeks. So if you've not read it for a while, if you've never read it, I encourage you to read that. Um, between now and the next time. But this letter to the Ephesians really is a treatise on what it means to be a fully alive follower of Jesus. I really believe that this letter is so rich with meaning and wisdom to help us. And he's writing a letter to the Ephesians that was to be passed around to other believers in the area because it was foundational to what he's saying. This is what the Christian life is all about. So, Let's turn there. If you have your app notes, follow along there. We'll give you the scriptures, but I always encourage you to bring your Bible and read it for yourself and know where it is. But we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 15. Paul prays for the Ephesians. And according to this prayer, you can put your soul to rest if you really grasp the following things in this prayer. He begins by saying this, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all God's people. So right there, you see the two directions, the upward, the faith in God, the sideways, the reaching out to others. He said, ever since I heard about your faith in Jesus and your love for God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And I keep asking God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that he may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So you may know him better. We're talking about knowing these things that are going to help put your soul to rest. But notice he begins with the line, for this reason, for this reason. For what reason? That begs the question. So I want to look at the passage prior to this one, if you don't mind, for just a few minutes. Because he opens his letter using the most superlative language describing how deeply loved and secure we are because of Jesus. And that's, that's valuable to getting rest for your soul. Let's look what it says, beginning of verse 4. He says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace that he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son. And he forgave 
our sins. So, when Paul's writing to the Ephesians and to the people that this letter would be passed around to the surrounding area, he's writing to people that years prior he had visited and spent a couple years there telling them for the very first time the good news of Jesus Christ. So on one of Paul's missionary journeys, he really, he went deep with the Ephesian people. Ephesus is, I, Ephesus is one of those places I'd love to visit. It's a, it's a bucket list place for me to visit. It's in modern day Turkey, right on the coast there. The ruins there are still there and it's a great place. So it's one of those, oh, I'd love to visit Ephesus and go on a tour of Paul's missionary journeys and see some of these places. But here he is. Paul writing to these people years later. So the letter to the Ephesians was written years after he established a community of Christ followers, believers there in this town. And that's what the letter is. So he's writing to them. But in Ephesus, you're writing to people who are thoroughly Hellenized, uh, meaning, meaning embracing the Greek culture. Um, 400 years earlier, Alexander the Great, in 13 brief years, amassed the largest empire in the ancient world. But he didn't just want to conquer the world militarily. He really wanted to conquer the world culturally. He wanted to spread the Greek culture everywhere that he conquered. And that's what Hellenization is. Hellenism is the Greek worldview. It's about the Greek passions, Greek values, Greek loves, Greek philosophies, art and worship. And so what, what Alexander the Great did everywhere he went, and they would begin to build these huge temples and beautiful theaters. In Ephesus, there was a theater that sat 25,000 people. And in these theaters, they would produce plays and art and entertainment. Because his goal wasn't to force people into Hellenism, convert or die, but to make it so compelling and so appealing that your heart was won over to it and you would forsake your other ways. He was driven by the conviction that the hope of the world was really Greece and that Greece was going to bring order and beauty and truth and goodness into the chaos of wherever they went. So they built gymnasiums, for athletic competition and social gatherings and education, and all sorts of things. And so this region of Asia Minor, where, where Turkey is today, where Ephesus is, was swept up in Hellenism. And in fact, it was a focal point of Hellenism. And Hellenism, in Hellenism, the human body, the humanity is glorified, is, is most esteemed. The glory of the human body was the most beautiful thing there was. And the accomplishments of human beings were the things that were celebrated the most. You can see it in all the art and all the paintings and, and all the sculptures. Athletic competitions were held in the nude because they thought the human body was, was everything. And it was so prevalent, this ideal of human perfectionism, the human body, that, that everyone that was in the Hellenistic culture were, were compelled to look good, to look right, to think right, to act right. So pervasive was the Hellenistic culture that everywhere you went, human perfection and accomplishment was what was celebrated. 
Doesn't sound too far-fetched, does it, from our culture in many ways. But here's the, down, the dark side of that. Over the years, this ideal of human perfectionism and potential was so celebrated that anything that wasn't that ideal was pushed to the margins of Greek culture. So you would have circuses where those who were deformed or disfigured or handicapped would be put on display, kind of like the freak shows of old carnivals of years past. But one of the most tragic things that went on was that if an infant was born into your family that was in any way disfigured or handicapped, you had permission to legally take that baby and put it outside the town, the city, and leave it there to die. It was a very popular practice called infant exposure. It was very prevalent in the first century. The Stoic philosopher Seneca wrote, we slaughter a fierce ox, we strangle a mad dog, we plunge a knife into a sick cow lest they taint the herd, and children who are born weakly and deformed, we drown. A second century doctor, gynecologist in Ephesus said this, a child was worth rearing if it should be perfect in all of its parts, limbs, and senses, and have passages that are not obstructed. Its limbs bend and stretch. Its size and shape should be appropriate. It should respond to natural stimuli. And by con conditions contrary to those mentioned, the infant was worth was not worth, the infant not worth rearing is recognized. And that's Ephesus. Ephesus was built on the side of a hill, a mountain, and there are records that say that people would take an unwanted child up on to the mountain and they would leave it in this specific area and expose it there to die. But here's the other part. People who knew where they would drop the infants off were free to go there and pick up the ones that were discarded, either to raise, to fill the brothels as sex slaves, or to raise as your own slave, because it's a lot cheaper than buying a slave. So Roman law recognized that once a child was left there, it belonged to whomever picked it up. And so instead of buying a slave, you could raise one. You could raise girls and sell them into prostitution. Ephesus was a major slave center. This is the letter that we're reading. These are the people to whom this letter was written to that were raised in this culture in Ephesus. And so the picture you have is where anything that was deformed, anything that had a blemish or defect was discarded. And there was a place you'd go and leave them so that others would claim them to enslave them. And it's interesting as we read on in the letter to Ephesus, Paul starts talking to masters and slaves. And so you imagine that you would have these little house churches where people who had been left as infants and are now slaves in these households, but they come to be believers in Jesus Christ. And how does that work? So with, with that background, I want to read the passage that we just read again, all right? Paul, writing to these people, says, even before he made the world, God loved us and he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family 
by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom and with the blood of his son and he forgave our sins. So imagine if you had slaves sitting there and this letter comes into the church and Paul's writing to them, some of whom might have been left as infants and abandoned by their parents and raised as slaves. And now they're in this house church and Paul starts leading with the idea that, you know what? God does not see the defects in you. God chose you just as you are. There's nothing else in this world would tell these people that God has adopted them into his family because he wants them and sees them without flaw. It's as if Paul is saying God is the God who goes running up the hill, scooping up all the defected and deformed and discarded and declaring them perfect in Jesus Christ. You're not my slave. You're going to be my child, and I'm going to raise you just as if you're my own. Isn't that a great story? Imagine the impact that would have on those who are reading it, that in love he chose us to be adopted as his children. And that's where Paul says, for this reason, for because of that, ever since I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people, I'm never stopping to give thanks and remembering you and asking God to give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. We need the revelation of God to comprehend this. We need the Holy Spirit to illuminate these things to us. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that no one knows the thoughts of God except by the Spirit of God. And that's where the, God, the Holy Spirit has to sort of give you the aha moment that, oh my gosh, this is what God thinks about me? Paul prays they'll receive a spirit of wisdom so that deep in their soul they could rest knowing that they are so valuable and so precious to God that he loved them just the way they were. And so, think about, do you struggle with feelings of inferiority? Insecurity? You're not good enough. You don't measure up. You're not lovable. People don't like you. You're a loner. You have these flaws. You have these, these things that you just want to hide. Do feelings of rejection nag at you? Because if that's the case, I want you to know what Paul's saying here is that when you put your head on the pillow at night, you can rest assured that God loves you just as you are, loves you with all your flaws and all your deformities and all your insecurities and all the things that others may judge you about because you don't measure up, that you can rest assured knowing that the one who knows you best loves you the most. Amen. And that's the knowledge that we need to get from what Paul's writing here. He goes on, he goes on. Not only do we need to know that God loves us most, he goes on, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. 
the riches of his glorious inheritance, inheritance in his holy people. And so knowing the hope to which he called you and the inheritance that's yours, that's, that's what faith is all about. Faith is all about hoping in that which God has promised you, that God has made available to you. It's hoping that God's ways are the right ways and acting on that hope. And, and because of that hope, when we go through the horrible things that life throws at us, that we don't have to deal with it the way other people have to deal with it. In other words, for instance, we had two families in the church this week that, that buried loved ones. And, um, and they will grieve, rightfully so. And it's not easy in any way, shape, or form. But the Bible says that we who have Christ do not grieve as those who have no hope. And so we grieve, but the hope that there is the end, that this story that ended in what we know and see and feel isn't really the end of the story. That's why Paul says, so we fix our eyes not on what we see, but on what we cannot see. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And faith gives us the ability to believe in the unseen world that we cannot measure and comprehend and understand. And yes, it is a leap of faith. But we live by faith and not by sight. I find hope in so many ways. This week we are having our lunch bunch. We do this once a month on a Thursday. We just come over here to the cafe and bring a bag lunch, those who aren't working and and uh, we'll just have a nice conversation, and anyone's welcome to come and join us. And in the conversation this week, um, one, of the, one of the ladies said, have you ever heard David Crowder's song, Come As You Are? And I may have heard it, but I didn't pay attention to it. So today, you can just punch in the song and play it right there. Blew me away. And this is just the line that comes through over and over in his song. He says, earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure. That's the hope of our inheritance, that whatever sorrows we have in this life, they will end the moment this life ends for us, Amen. and we are cured. So he says in the song, he says, so lay down your burdens, lay down your shame, all who are broken, lift up your face. That's the upward reach. Oh, wanderer, come home. You're not too far. Lay down your hurt. Lay down your heart. Come as you are. Folks, that's good news. That's the hope that we have. And so we, we lay our heads on the pillow at night and we can rest well having hope, having hope that we have an inheritance. So Paul prays, knowing God's love, that we would know and we would have this revelation by the spirit of God's love and power and we, our eyes would be enlightened to know the hope of eternity. But then he goes on and he says this. He says, I pray that you may know his incom incomparably great power for us who believe, his power for us who believe. 
And he describes that power. He says that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all other rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. Hmm. The power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that's available to us now. The power that raised Christ and now seated above all other gods, above all other powers and principalities and authorities, that's the power that God wants to give us. In fact, later on in this letter, he says, and now Christ seated us with God, seated us with Christ. We need to see that in God's eyes, we too don't have to succumb to the powers, to the authorities, and to the dominions of this world. Let me explain why that was so powerful to the Ephesians. I need to know God better. I need to know God's power better because, frankly, the powers that be, the Hellenistic powers, the cultural powers, whatever the powers that are, will do everything to get me to seek for my identity in things that are less than God. We seek for our status, approval, whatever it is, in lesser things, and when we do that, it's always going to leave us less than the abundant life that God wants for us, the full life that God has for us. Ephesus was known for one thing. Think about this. When people outside of our city of Pittsburgh think about Pittsburgh, what's the one thing they think of? Exactly. Exactly. Anytime I travel around the world, where are you from? I'm from Pittsburgh. Are you a Steeler fan? No, I mean, that's the dumbest question on earth, right? <laughs> of course I am. I'm from Pittsburgh. Well, for Ephesus, the one thing that stood above all other things was the Greek goddess Artemis. Because in Ephesus was the most impressive temple that existed in the world at that time, and it was the temple to Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And in Greek mythology, Artemis was the daughter of Zeus, who was the king of all gods. She was the daughter of Zeus and Leto, and the twin sister of Apollo. And she was usually depicted, if you ever see the goddess with the arrows, that's Artemis, as the maiden goddess of the hunt bearing a bow and arrows. Artemis was believed to have the power to help in childbirth, since in the myth of her birth, she helped her mother give birth to her twin brother. Don't know how that happened. <clears throat> That's why it's a myth. She's also the protector of girl children until the age of marriage. But here's the thing. Her and her brother Apollo had a dark side because they were the ones that brought on sudden death and disease. Later, she was associated with the moon and her brother Apollo with the sun. So she was the most widely venerated of the gods, one of the most widely venerated of the gods, and manifestly one of the oldest deities. In later times, she was associated and considered synonymous with the Roman goddess Diana. And so this cult of Artemis 
attracted thousands of worshipers. It was their biggest industry was the tourism to come to the temple of Artemis. It was a coastal city. That's why you had prostitution so prevalent and all the other things that are going on in this, this ancient city. And so you have all these worshipers who would gather at the site of Artemis to worship her and all the people there of Ephesus. This was their, their patron goddess. And so, so you have this goddess of hunting and wilderness and childbirth and fertility, but she also had this dark side. You get her mad and bad things may happen to you. This was the goddess of the Ephesians. They believed that she had the power that could save them from that which controlled their lives. They, in the Greek mindset, fate controlled you. And so you had to have these gods that could help keep you from the evils or the fears that fate would bring on you. In Acts chapter 19, it tells the story of when Paul first went to Ephesus. And it's a fascinating chapter. I invite you to read that. But it tells of his ministry there and how when he came, there were already a few believers that asked if they believed in the Holy Spirit since they'd received Jesus. No, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he stayed there for two years and he taught both the Jews and the Gentiles, the Greeks, all about Jesus. And God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So much so that many of the Ephesians turned to Christ. Well, what do you think that does for the souvenir business? The Artemis souvenir sellers, the silversmiths, the craftsmen. Well, they're not too excited because this new belief that came into their town through this guy Paul was threatening their business. It'd be like so many Pittsburghers God forbid, became Patriot fans. I need to cross myself or something. <laughs> and they bought so many Tom Brady shirts and so many AB Patriot shirts that the Yinzer store down on the strip was hurting and they raised up a ruckus because the Yinzers weren't going out of business. So, I mean, God forbid that would happen. But what happened was Demetrius, one of the silversmiths, raised up a riot in Ephesus because of what was happening. Got all the craftsmen together. They grabbed a couple of Paul's associates, brought them into the theater. I don't know what they were going to do, but there was all kinds of mayhem until the city, one of the city councilmen or somebody stood up and kind of calmed the crowd and they, they escaped the, the evil there. But that story's told there in Acts chapter 19. It's fascinating. It says there that in their anger, in Acts chapter 19, their anger boiled, and all the people began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Artemis of the Ephesians. The whole city was in an uproar. So with that background in mind, imagine years later now, okay, Paul's writing, this is years later than after they, that had happened, you're in a group of about 20 people that are meeting in a house church in the midst of Ephesus. You were raised to worship Artemis and give sacrifices to Artemis, and now you're having a child, and you've always believed that if you make Artemis mad that something bad will happen to your child, so do you go to the temple and make an offering? Do you... Do you, do you, if your son or daughter is sick, do you go there and have a sacrifice? Maybe your family and friends who are still big into the cult of worshiping Artemis, 
Maybe they're having an Artemis birthday celebration, the biggest holiday of the year, and they're inviting you to come and celebrate with them. Do you go? I mean, these are like, oh, we would never think about that, but that's kind of the, the cultural tension that it feels. How much do I give to Artemis and how much do I devotion do I give to God through Jesus Christ? To whom do I give my devotion? You're saying, well, we don't have to worry about that. <clears throat> No, maybe that's true. We don't have to worry about that. But maybe you come to Jesus and Jesus sets you free from your old way of living. You know, you find new life in Jesus and all of a sudden you find that, man, you're just, you're not partying the way you used to party. You're not cutting the corners the way you used to cut the corners. You, you, you're not stuffing your, lining your pockets with, with, with things, skimming things off the top, you, 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 you start treating people differently and, you know, your life has changed and then you're, you're following this, this Jesus and, and, and then, but you have friends and you have family and they don't know Jesus and, you know, sinners will sin and they will invite you to come and join them and so what do you do? Do you, do, you know, I mean, Paul went into that culture. He didn't, Join them in that, but he definitely influenced it, right? Can we be influences? And I believe we can. But, but maybe you're tempted to fall back into your old ways. You're not worshiping Artemis, but let's face it. In our culture, we worship the gods of money, sex, and power. And, and so you get to thinking, well, I'm following Jesus, but man, you know, I don't know if, I don't know if I can get all that I want. So, you know, I'm going to follow Jesus, but I'm going to also try to cut the corners to get a little more. You always need more. That's the monster of more. And when you lay your head on the pillow at night, you worry about things. Do I have enough? Am I attractive enough? Will I ever be happy? And so the pool of culture pulls you back and you wonder, is Jesus enough? Paul never mentions Artemis worship in his letter, but he undoubtedly is encouraging these believers to stay true to Jesus when they're tempted to fall back into their old ways. And that's why he says, I want you to know his incomparably great power. Because that power is that power that raised Christ from the dead, put him at the right hand, far above all other rulers and dominions and names, above all other things, not only in the present age, the one to come. And then he says, and then God placed everything under his feet and appointed Jesus to be head over everything, meaning even over Artemis. Head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who feels everything in every way. And so we need to know that God's power is bigger and greater than the powers of this world, the powers that be, that promise you that if you continue in your old way of life that you're going to get to where you need to go. And Jesus is saying, no, there's a better way. My way is better, higher than your ways and the ways of this world. Which way are you going to go? But he says, come to Jesus, and he's the head over everything in the body. And so, in other words, be a part of this body that's going to help you even as you influence the larger culture around you.
So here's the thing. I need to know God better and better because the gods of this world, the powers that be, will do everything to get me to seek for my identity and the things I want out of life and things that are always lesser than God's ways and God's will. And so here's the final thought that I want you to grasp today is when your head hits the pillow, rest well knowing God's power, knowing that you are secure in God through Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask the band to come back, and as they do, I want to just kind of focus in right now and ask the question, how is your soul? How is your soul? Is it at rest? When your head hits the pillow at night, do you toss and turn over things that are beyond your control, inferiority, insecurity, hopelessness, powerlessness? Because the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, I usually sleep pretty well at night. Now, at this age, you know, you got to get up. TMI, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Bring it back. Now, at times, however, my sleep gets stolen from me. Unresolved conflict keeps me awake at night. I don't know about you, but if I know that somebody's mad at me or I disappointed somebody, I just, oh, I want to solve it. If I have a deadline, if, if it's Saturday night and I've not gotten this down by Saturday night, I'm not going to sleep well, which that never happens. If I have a deadline to meet and I know it's coming, it'll keep me awake. If I'm worried about somebody, if I'm worried about one of you, sometimes I wake at night and I... You know, that's when I'll just pray in the spirit because I just get worried. Or maybe it's a stupid head cold or I drank too much coffee. But sometimes my sleep gets stolen from me. And But I want to ask you, what's stealing your rest? Not necessarily your sleep at night, but what's stealing your rest for your soul? What's keeping you from feeling that you are at peace with God? And that when you put your head at pillow at night, things are good with you and God. Jesus came to give us life in all of its fullness. And here's the thing. You are most fully alive when your soul is fully at rest in God, in his love, in his hope for eternity, and in his power. Are you there? Would you like to be there? Can you be there? The answer is a resounding yes, because Jesus is right here. He's right here. And as the Crowder song says, earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Wanderer, come home. You're not too far. Lay down your hurt. Lay down your heart. Come as you are. Lay down your burdens. Lay down your shame. Would you bow your heads with me, please? <clears throat> if in the midst of this look at Paul's letter to this ancient church, 
the Spirit brought something alive in your heart. And there's something about what you heard today that the Spirit's saying, you know, you need to just fall in love with Jesus again and quit being pulled by the powers that be to go back to your old ways. Just rest knowing the love of God is there for you just as you are. You don't have to worry about your insecurities, your imperfections, your falling short. He wants you just as you are. He wants to adopt you. He wants to buy you. He wants you to be his child. You worry about the big questions of life and eternity and Man, you just need the hope of God to fill your heart and let you know that no matter how bad this life gets, it's not the final story. You want hope. You just need to rest and just let the Holy Spirit give you the power that you need to say yes to God and live the full life that he wants for you and not be swayed by the powers that be in this world that so, so try to pull you down. Stand strong. Stand strong. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room right now and all of us to some degree and some of us to a large degree who know that this message was designed specifically for them. God, thank you that your arms are wide open toward us. May we reach up to you knowing that you're not up there somewhere. You're right here all around us. We reach up to the source of true life, God. Fill us with your love, your grace, your mercy. We accept it. We receive it. We believe it. We want to follow Jesus. We want to follow Jesus. We come to you, Jesus, right now. Forgive us, heal us, help us, and give us hope, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at www.riversideconnect.org.